Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I'm Sophia, and I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Vicki Borgia. Hello, Vicki. Hello. <laughs> um, I want to share that I found out about you because you work with Dr. Rachel Milner, who appeared in season two as a guest. And we were chatting, and I just mentioned, I said, oh, I'd really love to have a doctor on the show. And she said, oh, I have the person that you need to talk to. And so she connected us. So shout out to Rachel. Thank you. And Vicki, I'm just, I'm really honored that you're here. I'm so excited to get a doctor's perspective on the challenges that fat bodies face when it comes to the medical profession. Mm -hmm. So welcome. Thank you. And yes, shout out to Rachel. Rachel is the best. Yeah, she is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so Vicki, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So um, I am right now, I live on Lenape territory, Philadelphia. I have a direct primary care office in South Philadelphia. I grew up um, solidly middle class on Long Island in the like 70s and 80s. And um, I did my undergrad at Columbia, where I always say at the dawn of intersectionality because the, that article actually came out while I was there and I was a women's studies major. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it really informed so many things. Um, did you know you wanted to be a doctor when you were studying? Yes, and actually, I was the first ever. So at Columbia at the time, I have no idea what it's like now. Um, you had to have a major and then a concentration, right? You had your major and then you concentrated in something else. So I wanted my major to be women's studies and then a concentration in one of the sciences or all of those things. So if I were to do it, like concentrate in chemistry or biology, one of those things, I actually would have had to been in school forever to do all my prereqs and my women's studies things. So um, <laughs> this is one of the first of many things that will probably date me. I went and I got Oak Tag and magic markers and I made pie charts about like <laughs> how many courses I'd have to take to actually ever graduate and how I wouldn't be able to afford that nor would anyone and so if you actually want people who study things like um, women and gender studies or any of the other ones at the time that were like basically new majors right that you needed to be able to have a concentration, like a pre-med concentration. So my concentration were my prereqs, right? Um, and so I was the first one. I got that established um, after 
coloring in pie charts. Yeah. And stuff. It, was, it was so cute. I went to my chair and I was like, see, this is what. And don't you actually want to have doctors who have studied all these things? So why don't you actually make it easy instead of this? Because this is a really expensive school and I won't be able to stay here for that long. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I, I wouldn't have done it. Honestly, if I had to go back, I would not be a doctor. I'm going to put that out there now because of how it is. And this is part of what we'll discuss. But there are so many other things that I probably would have done. Like I always saw myself as like an organizer, Mm -hmm. um, except for the crippling social anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I would have not gone to med school after. And while... My undergraduate degree and study since then informs everything about my life, my activism in college and in med school and things like that. It didn't make it easy, you know? Like, I felt very much like an outsider. I was going to say you were probably so different. I was, and I really struggled in med school, especially the first two years until I found the queer med students group in New York. And then I led that. And then I found AMSO, which is the American Medical Students Association, a very progressive uh, group of med students. And that saved me. And then I was on the board. I was the national LGB. Actually, I I added the T to that one. So it used to just be LGB thing. And then so when I was there, we added the T. And so then I had like connections across the country and people that like my people, you know, yeah, to find your community. Yeah. When you start um, doing clinical work, it's e- well, it was easier for me because it was actually with real people mm-hmm. and that, and I didn't have to hang. I used to joke that I watch The Simpsons every week because it gives me something to talk about <laughs> with my, my meds classmates. <laughs> I mean, I like The Simpsons too, but I was just like, otherwise, I don't know what we ever would talk about because our lives are so different. Yeah. Well, in different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. 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 Very different ways of seeing the world. And, you know, frankly, a lot of my classmates also grew up on Long Island and were part of the reason I worked really hard to get out. Um, and so it was, it was difficult. It was, yeah. it was absolutely difficult. I then went to a residency in Southern California that I found because of AMSA, a very progressive residency. And then like, you know, it was much better because my people were there. I didn't need to like do stuff. Yeah. Um, I am, I call myself fat, loud and cranky. (laughs) I love the cranky part so much. (laughs) I am all those things mostly, right? (laughs) So I am, uh, I guess I'm cis, I call myself queer now, you know, because terminology has changed so much. I don't know if that terminology was around before when I came out, what I would have been. Um, I am currently able-bodied, except I have no teeth, except for my dental adventure, but you know, that could change on a dime. So there's that. Um, I have two grown um, children, cis white male um privileged athletic types which i believe is my universe's journey Mm -hmm. right i look back and i was like yeah i get it that's my journey like the ultrasound with the first when we saw the penis i was like oh i'm not really (laughs) sure i know what to do with that i actually have a degree in not penises 
So let's see. And then by the second one, I was like, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a degree in not so penises. <laughs> a degree in not penises, right? <laughs> like, I was like, oh, I get, oh, my pedagogy has nothing to do with this. But it turned out okay. I mean, it turned out fine, obviously. I love my children. Um, but that has actually been quite an interesting struggle. And to see how my tall, they're both really tall and they're athletic and they- They're kind of like top of the body hierarchy, the they, body ladder. They are, they are top of the ladder in the US or like in most of the world, right? They're upper middle class. They never really struggle with that thing. They are tall. They get okay grades, you know, like they are- if they weren't my children, you know, like one time we were at a college um, tour and it was the two of them and one of their friends and they were all just kind of sitting and talking to themselves. And I was kind of with the group and I, I sat them down and I was like, you know, when you do that, you're actually threatening to other people. And so you need to realize. So they think a lot about that and a lot about their privilege. Yeah. You know, um, which is so good, though. Like, it's great that you've kind of, well, and that you've, I imagine that that's been part of the conversation as you've been raising them, right? Always. To, well, yeah. my parenting philosophy is don't raise douchebags. I think I did it. Yeah, good. <laughs> Ours is don't raise little assholes. So same thing. That's <laughs> the same thing, right. But I mean, like, I have like, don't raise privileged douchebags so they could so easily become that. And they played a lot of sports where that is so big. So like, I would give presents to coaches that were not like not full of toxic masculinity i would send them thank you notes and yeah. give them like beer and so the reason i think i maybe did okay was my older son was coaching a middle school baseball team that's close to his college and he got a thank you note from a mother basically saying thank you for not being a toxic douchebag <laughs> and i was like i don't and he sent it to me because he was like, look. <laughs> and so I sent this mother a thank you. You did? I love <laughs> Well, I don't think they're douchebags, but I'm sure the mothers of many douchebags <laughs> also say that. So this is nice validation to know that he's also coaching in a way that is not toxic. And I was like, too bad you're too young, you know. I, I bought your coach's beers, but oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really funny it's it's a very funny experience too because raising athletes who eat all the time mm -hmm. and living in diet culture for so long like switching over to like now i make things that are like highly densely caloric with extra protein and things like that like it had to change and i it, it it was surreal. Yeah, was that part of your journey? Yeah, it was. It was definitely. So my my journey, I can talk about like my relationship with the word fat, right? So I grew up on Long Island in the 80s, right? I, I think I probably had like a binge eating disorder really young when I think about it. And then, so fat was a bad word, don't be fat. My mom was on constant diets, always talking about it. 
I was one of the people who went to Weight Watchers, not so young, but as like a teenager. And it was always thought about. When I was younger, I played softball and I was, I was really actually quite good and I was, I hit really well and my coach started calling me a heavy hitter and I think that did something really weird to my brain. Just that word, heavy. Heavy, yeah, but he was a heavy hitter. So like, do they say this to like David Ortiz? Right? Like, you know, like that, that wouldn't be a thing. And I, I don't know if that's the timeline from it, but I really did start like restricting pretty severely. Mm. I would have to, um, so like, you know, don't be, a, don't be heavy. I had to, you know, it was like the error of like Brooke Shields, Jordash jeans. Yes, yes. Oh God, Jordash, 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 right? To have all those things, and I remember, um, you know, I restricted quite a bit. I had a paper out after school, and by Thursday, I would eat an apple, or else I would faint. Oh, so that's yeah. That was like through middle school. So. Nobody kind of noticed. And then mm. I started purging. And so I would say it was bulimic from middle school to like the end of college. And because I'm a dork, I um, did a paper on it before starting it, bulimia. Oh, interesting. Like you researched it before. I researched it <laughs> and I did it as a paper. I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> At is. This is my dorky <laughs> mind. But you know what? It was pretty good because I've been like, I should eat bananas. I got to keep my potassium okay. I don't want to die of a cardiac arrhythmia, right? Nice. And, um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, and toward, I sort of capped the end of this, although, you know, there's no real end, I think. Yeah. Um, but in college, I wrote a chapter on eating disorders with another person in this um, handbook that we had. Mm. Uh, the Barnard Columbia Women's Handbook and I did the eating disorder chapter with someone who was pretty anorexic and it was interesting because you know how that play on the skinny anorexic and I was bulimic and I was at that point actually I wasn't even that bulimic but my and my weight was up because I was okay with it yeah um, and so there was a lot of that tension yeah um, yeah and that tension just to name it is basically that if you're fat there's there, there's almost like a dis. I think what you're saying is there's almost a disbelief when fat people say I have an eating disorder. Yeah. Okay. Also, it's not as great of an eating disorder to have as anorexia because if you're the typical anorexic, even though we know that people can be anorexic at any weight, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's like, if there's just a privilege to that, right. Then the willpower of it, all the rest of the things, you know, and great. And I went to a pretty, competitive ridiculous school too so there was always competitiveness about that yeah so the at the end it was probably like my last year of college was when I really started grappling a little more um and I still think fat was a bad word by college mm -hmm. and once I started 
doing more work about my own eating disorder and other issues, um, it got easier for me. Now I am very unapologetically very happy to say I'm fat, but I do have privilege because I'm like a small to medium fat, Yeah, you know, so there is a way I want to make sure I say that and I say that to pay, depending on what, how, what, how patients are, mm-hmm. I'll use that easily yeah. unless I feel like they need me to couch it in like people with larger bodies or things like that. Yeah. Depending on their own journey with the word yeah i like to reclaim fat like i like to reclaim dyke and it's a joke because i have i just really i have no frontal inhibition anymore i'll call specialists um that i'm about to send a person to and i'll actually be like so how are you with the fat dykes (laughs) and uh if they laugh i know that's okay yeah (laughs) sometimes they laugh sometimes they have to take a beat and then they tell me like that they're okay with it and sometimes they're just like oh my god (laughs) and then i know like it's probably not gonna be the it could be okay for some people you know but my patient panel have been so traumatized i don't think i have one person that hasn't had such medical trauma that if i could do that and save them the trauma yes Whatever. It's also kind of funny to hear what people's what people say. <laughs> I love that you shock them. I know. <laughs> like if you're ever gonna call me, I'm probably gonna talk like that anyhow. So yeah. you might as well know. I really can't. I'm basically unemployable at this stage <laughs> in the game. <laughs> and, and is that it does that why you started your own practice? Because I think you said when we were talking before you worked in a big institution for a while, is that right? I've worked in every kind of medical thing there is there because all of it is exploitive and abusive to patients and doctors and nurses and MAs and PAs and MPs, right? And is that because it's a business? Yeah, it's it's because it's a business. It's I mean, I guess it's different in Canada. We all hear about the different struggles, but yeah. Our even not for profit is a, our medical industrial complex is for profit, right? And so a lot of the reasons why I couldn't do what I do here in big places is because of money. It's because of things you have to click on the stupid EMR things. It's about what your bonus might be based on. Um, yeah, that's something that really I don't know if people know, but like there were two things that happened. So. A bunch of years ago, when I was teaching at a residency, we had this program that um, all the people who had diabetes had to have their lipids checked and they had to be certain numbers or whatever, right? And so we hire or that we had a pharmacist and she called everybody. She got everything. She did great. We all got bonuses. The absolutely the next day they changed the guidelines. (laughs) for lipid management in diabetes. And I was like, look at how arbitrary this is. Like I can go on vacation because I got this bonus, but look at all this work that we did. None of our patients' lives, maybe some of them, if they had terrible cholesterol, it went down. But like, we're talking about little numbers that did their lives change that much? Probably not, you know? And that actually started me. I, I don't think I could do this now how it is especially in the U.S., but I would negotiate my contract so that I had more of a base salary and less of the bonus structure because I knew I was never going to make the bonus structure because I just wasn't going to do the things that they wanted me to do. Yeah, because so the things that 
so you you doctors and health professionals would get bonuses based on if if their patients lowered their lipid levels like it was that that kind of thing that's like sales targets yeah it's like sales targets that that was the one that was then there's a lot of different things now so like in the u.s every every time i send somebody to a specialist or whatever they always will put like bmi addressed obesity and then there's some sort of like made up thing they put in because you have to click it so that you get the points or whatever and so even if that never happens, that's part of the reason. Although I did recently learn that when you refuse to be weighed, you're taken out of the denominator of that. So that's actually good for your dogs. Not being weighed actually helps them, right? Because if it's like how did, if you addressed it and you refuse the weight, right, then that could be that could be helpful. I just this whole idea is pretty abhorrent it's so perverted so i have worked in mostly uh federally qualified health centers is what they're called here like community health centers and um look-alike community health centers i've worked in two of the big systems here i was re on faculty at a residency for a while and then I did urgent care, like in between these two things. And mm -hmm. so the last job I had was urgent care. So, um, yeah, but it is all the way that it's the profit driven way medicine is done. Even if you take away all of the medical racism, sexism, fat phobia, homophobia, it's still never going to do it. And I was tired of seeing people like every eight minutes. That's what it was every eight minutes. Oh, uh, you get like 15, but you got to like chart and stuff unless you're up all day. So I was working at a health center and I think I saw in one morning like 30 people. Wow. And I mean, it was a long morning. It was like probably till one, but then it was in my neighborhood and I would see these people places and I just looked at myself. I could run one of these people down with my car later today and not remember that I saw them. <laughs> you know, like honestly, I could not, I would. I wouldn't even be able to like place you unless it was something huge or something very memorable. And that, you know, you just can't, you, you can't be like that. Most people go into medicine, one, it's interesting scientifically, but it's for the relationship with people. And we, you take that away and it's just assembly line. It is assembly line medicine. And I had to get off the assembly line. So when I started my practice, the choices were leave medicine, leave the earth, or do direct primary care. And I don't know what direct primary care is. Can you, can you explain that a bit? Yeah, it's it's actually, it's getting way more common in the U.S. So people think of concierge medicine. It is not that. Um, but it people pay me a membership fee monthly. Oh, so instead of doing health insurance with their company, for example, they would do it with you? Uh, no, I am legally bound to tell you I am not in insurance and people should have insurance. Oh, okay. God. I just listened to the workplace wellness episode of maintenance phase that came out. So I'm, I've got like all the insurancey stuff in my head yeah. right now. So, um, <laughs> we recommend people have some insurance to cover for like catastrophic or things like that. So, right. I have to say that. 
Um, but people can make their own judgment about what their risks are, right? Yeah. So I will tell people that you should have some coverage no matter. So my your monthly fee to me gets you unlimited access to me so I can get people in pretty quickly, except for now because of triple pandemic. But um, mostly I can get people in in a few days. Um, I, ha- I can have my first visit last 90 minutes and follow-ups are somewhere between 30 and 45. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And I have negotiated lab prices with LabCorp that are super cheap. And I dispense medicines from here that I got through wholesales things. So people save money in that way. Right. So um, people can use their insurance. And many people do. Like if you had to get an MRI, although honestly, I just paid $800 for my son's MRI with his insurance, with two insurances, in fact. Both me and my ex had covered him, and I and we still had to pay eight hundred bucks. So um, I probably could have gotten the cash one for six hundred, but whatever. So like, if you needed big ticket items or surgery or things like that, like I'll I'll advise people. Like, if you think this is a year that's coming up that you're going to need a lot of stuff, then we'll talk about what insurance might work best for you. Oh, interesting. I never bill insurance. Um, I will do the certifications you need and get authorizations for meds if you want to use your insurance. And it reminds me why I don't want to work in that model because it is just really everything is an obstacle. And then I, you know, sort of choose how I grow and how fast and what happens. But I really am just my own. I can do what I want. And that's really the only way I can actually practice in a truly like weight neutral, fat positive way. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about that. Like, what does that mean? Uh, Your website, I love your website. I was checking it out before we started talking and I'd said to you before we started recording, I love that the kind of tagline is compassionate and respectful medical care. And I said, I'm deeply saddened that that is, that that's like your unique factor. As, as a clinical medical office. As a clinical medical, yeah, Oof. I know, I know. Yeah, and grateful that you do it. And, and I'm curious, because you also mentioned health at every size, gender affirming care, queer care. So so curious about how is your office different? What, what are those? Well, my office is actually beautiful for one. Let's start with that. It's not that beautiful right now. It's very messy. However... Like my waiting room is gorgeous. If you want <laughs> me to pull the thing around that you won't get. I have beautiful open windows. We covered them with like that film you do because I have a physical therapist who comes in and does some pay what you can visits here. So a nice space. A couch and a chair that has arms that were from somebody else's office. And then I have two other chairs that are armless and really high capacity. Nice. So when you walk in, it doesn't look like a doctor's office at all. Um, I do have a scale because I do need to sometimes weigh people, mostly children, to give them the right dose of amoxicillin. But, like, I never weigh anyone. It's in the back. It's fine. Um, And then my... So I have lots of books, although many of them are borrowed and never returned. Like Joy Cox's book and also The Body is Not an Apology. Are, I, I, I should just buy them in bulk. Yes. I never, I never get them back. 
I mean, that is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I mean, it is a beautiful, and I hope they go on to other people in the world, right? So, and then I have a bunch of children's books. And you will come into my office since you're usually it's just like one person. We can even start doing the history out in the waiting area because it's just like pleasant. My, so I, I, it was, it was actually quite difficult to get an office in South Philadelphia that had a bathroom that was accessible because the buildings are very old and like bathrooms are just like put on in weird ways. So like there was a gorgeous space I loved. And then I looked at the bathroom. It was like very oddly triangular and I was like, nobody could get it. So, um, and nobody chose to make a triangular bathroom. So I'm sure there's no way around that. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have two rooms. One of them is used um, by a therapist and we also do some ketamine assisted therapy in there. And then my actual exam room, um, my pride and joy, the inanimate object I love a little too much (laughs) is this table, my exam table that can hold, I think up to 600, um, goes up and down, does all the things. I can do inseminations, I can do IUDs, I can do all the things. The funny thing about that was I measured it when they were building out my office and I was like, oh great, it'll fit. What I didn't measure was my ass and the fact that I'd be at the end of the table so I had to have the doors move out. <laughs> I know I was like, no, no, just self measure your measure your own ass. <laughs> measure your own ass because you're going to be doing procedures here. <laughs> and so like I'm half sticking out. I got to lock the front door when I do that. But it is pretty funny. <laughs> so I it was so expensive even used, and I like when I was just starting out. But honestly, why have a table that people can't get up on, that people will feel afraid of? Like, why would you do that just until you could get this table, right? So I do love it. I would disinfect it all the time. I was this close to buying, like, a conditioner for the (laughs) material. And I was like, just stop. (laughs) You do love it. (laughs) I love it so much. Well, as someone who, when I do, I've been going, I've, um, last couple of years, I've been diagnosed with endometriosis. So I'm on tables all the time. Right. And the, I've, I've been on some and I'm like, oh, it's shaking. Is it, and I'm, you know, reclining legs up, they're putting things inside of me. And I'm like, please don't like, I would be deeply harmed if, you know, you've got the thing inside of me, the wand, and, and there's a fall. And also the narrowness of them. Like, I'm often, like, kind of hold it, like. Yeah, like when you have to have your arms or you tuck your arms in, like, a massage table and things like that. Yeah, that you have to actually be aware of those things. Right. So I don't want that to be the case. Um, and I have all the all of the different blood pressure cuffs just right there waiting. So I don't have to like look or do anything. I do want to get one, the the conical ones. I just can't figure it out. That's going to be my next purchase. But so I have all the different sizes that people don't have to worry or think about. And my other chair in there is a, uh, you know, high capacity chair. What's not great about my office is there's a stoop outside 
and I, they were going to like redo it and put a ramp. But I opened in November of 2019, and then they were like, well, we'll do it in the spring because there's something about contraction of concrete or whatever. And then, like, didn't happen. And now I might move into a bigger space later, so I'm like, oh, should I bother? I have a ramp that I, like, a portable thing that I have to put up. So it's not, like, truly accessible because of that, but inside it is, and I will ramp to the little back and things like that, you know, You've thought through so many details. I did. I thought through a lot of it. Did you? Yeah. Was it just based on your own experience or like how did? Yeah. Yeah. Both my own as a patient and working in all those different places, you know? So like when I worked, when I worked in urgent care, I can't tell you how many people came in and was like, my knee hurts and I know it's because of my weight or my throat hurts and I know it's because of my weight. And I'll be like, no, it's not any of those things and preface feeling the need to preface that yeah you know the charm offensive be the good fatty right all that stuff and i'd be like explain again how your sore throat is because you're fat like is it like fat in your throat like what how does that happen it's not even like anatomically a thing so seeing that and seeing how inaccessible some places really were to people made me think about what I needed. Um, and then, yeah, my, my scale doesn't go, I think my scale goes to 550 and I might get a bigger one for that. Not because I need to weigh people, nor do I, but I was thinking about it in terms of, I do sometimes like pre-op and then I'm just forced to do it. But that. I, I need to get that. And if I expand, I'm going to, I'm going to have a new, my old table is going to be very jealous, but I'm going <laughs> to get the other table. That's like that. I think goes to 800. Yeah. And then I'll have two of them. Yeah. I'll have like real, real tables. Um, so yeah, I, that, and I also thought through a lot about like, Things I've done in other offices that were hard because I didn't have the necessary equipment, right? So, um, and I do a lot of, like, reproductive care, basically. So I'll do inseminations, I'll do IUDs, and for people in larger bodies, you need other equipment and you need to be able to to do that. So I, you know, I'm... Does that equipment exist? Well, it depends. So like what I have for sometimes what happens with like IUDs and inseminations, IUDs mostly, the walls will come in, you know, and like, I don't know if people have had the condom on the speculum to try to do it. I think that does nothing. Um, So I got a different kind of speculum that is um, longer, but not bigger because you know how like you don't need a ginormous big one in terms of width I just need something that is longer to be able to see right and then I have um these retractors that you use if you're doing a procedure called a leap where you take a little bit off of the cervix and I have actually found them to be quite comfortable for people Mm. so that's helpful for some of the things like instead of trying to do the stupid condom thing on the speculum yeah um so they don't exist specifically for it but you know 
I'm just trying to like figure it out as I go along. Yeah. Right. That's so great. I mean, it's interesting just even in my own journey uh, with endometriosis, my um, gynecologist, she said, well, if you need surgery, I can't do it because of your BMI. You have to go to Mount Sinai in Toronto. I guess it's, I, and it, and it turns out that's okay. Cause actually she was not an endo specialist. And I have since learned that if you're going to have surgery you need like a trained professional because most gynees they're just not trained in it right they don't do it all the time um but it was it was a very interesting feeling being told that my body for what and she didn't go into details but would not work within any surgical suite so then that started freaking then i started to think oh god but what if this endo cyst that's on my ovary what if it explodes and what if I need immediate surgery and I live in a small town? Like, am I now, my standard of care is depleted because what, the instruments won't work, the doctors won't know what to do, how to work with my body. Like all of these stressors. Is it the exam table? Like those things can be changed, but that's on us. That's on medicine. Like have the right equipment, train in the right way to do it. You know, like we're, we honestly, medical schools, we learn our trade off the bodies of the disenfranchised. That is absolutely true because med schools, community hospitals, like I did my medical training at downstate, really very, very poor people, very marginalized people. Like we don't, we, I, I think that people don't think so much about that. How, what a debt we owe. Right. Cause like, that's how we learn our trade. Right. And so if we can do that in med school, and they're better now in terms of some stuff, you know, like microaggressions and things like that. And for other things, not really for fat people mm -hmm. might come. But like if we can think of changing the paradigms as we're doing now, like um, a good example is the uh, differences in creatinine clearance that they have in labs. I don't know if you've read about this, but so it's one of the reasons why um, – like if you put in that someone is black, they 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 actually they calculate it differently, and so this is why black people don't get as many renal transplants, don't get as many kidney transplants, and it's not based on anything. Much like the BMI is not based on anything, and so there's a movement now, but it keeps them away from getting care or earlier care, right? Like see so the mom on that list, and. That is actually changing now. And now sometimes you'll get labs that are like, we're still using the blah, blah, like in a little apology on it. <laughs> we're still using the other blah, blah, blah for this, right? Um, so, you know, things change. Like even with like gender affirming care. So I've been in medicine for 20-ish years and it is so different from that now than it was. So I have a little bit of hope, you know, not a lot of hope because... I don't have a lot of hope in humanity, but this like thing that happened that changed really pretty um, rapidly and more recently, like the acceleration of it really does make me feel like there can be other, other changes. I mean, things aren't going to change in the big systems because of capitalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's really just it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in my conversation with Reagan Chastain, we were talking about gender affirming surgeries and how so many fat people are denied because 
of BMI and it's basically like held over you where it's like, well, get your BMI down to X, Y, Z, and then we'll grant you. I mean, it's. And I actually had a student this summer um, call around for surgery, just for top surgeries, though, um, to see like if people had BMI limits and if what they were, if they had them and why. And it's actually better around here. It is better. There are people who are there like BMI. It doesn't matter. And then I try to send them people for breast reduction. They say, no, you have to get to a BMI of that. And I was like, so what's that? Why is it different? Right? Yeah. But um, I know. Do you argue with them? Do you do you call and fight with argue them? Argue with them about that? I do, but it's not going to get like I'm it's me against 10. Come on. Um, <laughs> so the uh, I, I had a patient too that had a super traumatizing event because I sent them somewhere to get a tubal or you know we take the tubes out now Mm -hmm. um after like after dobbs many many people wanted to be sterilized and what's dobbs dobbs oh is a terrible thing that befell it got rid of roe v wade so abortion access right so yeah yeah um so Many surgeons who would gatekeep around that, you know, you had to be a certain age and see if you, you know, like, because you can't decide whether you want kids, whatever. Um, I mean, I thought all of that was ridiculous, too, but then that actually loosened a lot of that up. Mm. So I sent someone to, to talk about it with a patient, and she came back just in tears, in tears, about how terrible they said that if they she would die because her BMI is so high. And this is someone who's a little bit celebrated on social media for things and will no longer get referrals from me. But um, then I sent her to this other person that I love in a, in a medical way. Um, and he was like, no, oh, of course we can do it. We'll schedule it for like the 12th or whatever. So, I mean, she, she got what she needed, but that's the thing. So it's completely and totally arbitrary, and it really just depends on, like, what you're willing to do. So, like, I will tell my patients, I'm happy to try to do this. I don't know if I'll be able to do this, but we can try, and we can see, and if I need another set of hands to, like, pull back stuff or whatever, you want a friend to come mm-hmm. and help me if we need to, like, pull part of your belly or something like that, like, then that's that's fine. But like, why, if it's so arbitrary, you know, if there's, I could talk a long time about that. However, I do have a spreadsheet for the Philadelphia area for top surgery and a lot of other people and their BMIs because I had an awesome med student who, who did that for me. Well, those resources, those kind of community sharing resources, I've tapped into all of those as well. Different Facebook groups and people post. You it Like you end up creating your own community wisdom of people who won't make you feel like shit about your body. Yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about what are, are there any risks, challenges to running your practice the way you do? Like really, because you're taking a hard line here. You're basically saying all bodies are welcome and I'm not participating in, you know, anti-fatness and anti-trans and, you know, so what's, are the, what are the challenges? In the end, I am an allopathic 
physician. I trained at an allopathic med school. I'm going to use medicine if you need medicine, right? Like, I'm not going to give you medicine because your A1C is in the made-up pre-diabetes land, right? Yes. Because that's marketing. Oh, you might, I'm going to have you say more about that, too, after. <laughs> so we could talk about your options. We could do all that. But, uh, I mean, in the end of the day, I have some training in integrative medicine. I believe in, you know, some things, not not other things. I have I have opinions about functional medicine, whatever. Yeah. But in the end, I'm, I'm an allopathic doc. So... What I do is actually see the people who haven't been seen for 10 years because they had a traumatic experience. I get them into care. We do however people can do it. Sometimes everything we can do the first visit. Sometimes people can't do their blood pressure yet. I have a patient who I have not gotten the blood pressure on, but now we get the cuff on and that's a good start, you know. Because the trauma they've experienced is so significant. And they're so anxious about having that happen to them, you know. Um, and I know if I keep doing it, I'll get it. And if I force her to do it, she won't come back. And then who the hell knows what her blood pressure will be. So, like, I don't know what her blood pressure is, but I will one day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm okay with that because as if it wasn't that, it would be no days. No one would know what it was, right? So um, I'll see people. We'll do the 90-minute visit mostly because everyone cries. Sometimes it's also me. And then um, kind of figure out people's history. And this is, I mean, people are so traumatized that it's hard. Um, and then I will do all the things allopathic physicians do except weigh you. And we'll address them in however you want to address it, right? So people have high blood pressure. People have diabetes. But that's like everyone. Not just like, right, because everyone gets those things, no matter what your BMI is, right? So, and I actually don't think that, I think my numbers are probably the same, if not a little better than when I was at the FQHC, although those were mostly newer immigrants from um, Mexico. And I think that, that they probably didn't have care, but I, I feel like if I ever had any extra time, <laughs> And I ran my numbers. I actually think it would be similar to other primary care places that I've worked. Yeah. And when you say your numbers, do you mean like people's? How many people have diabetes? How many people have high blood pressure? How many people have high cholesterol? Like, I really think it's the same. Yeah. But people are so afraid because you walk in assuming yeah. that that's what it's going to be, right? And so, but I really don't, I really think it's, it's similar, honestly. Well, which that backs up a lot of the research, which is there's no disease that only happens to fat people. It's like it's just that they're they're been treated shitty and they don't go to care. Yeah. So maybe I will get somebody whose A1C is super high. Although honestly, I really haven't. Yeah. You know, those are the sorts of things. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting what you said, because this this whole like pre-diabetes thing is such a bugaboo of mine. Can you say more about how pre-diabetes A1C levels, this is it the whole concept of pre-diabetes is all marketing and bullshit? Like, is that what is what is your what are your thoughts on that piece? My thoughts are like when real estate people rename neighborhoods. That's what I call it. <laughs> 
So we have a neighborhood here called Graduate Hospital, which is now called Rittenhouse South, because Rittenhouse is a fancy neighborhood, you know. It's like Dumbo or any of the, the real estate things that we make the hot new neighborhood. That's what I think they did. They market, they rebranded it, that they marketed it with the help of, you know, the drug companies. Um, Novo Nordisk and their insulin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's let yeah, we'll just we'll just say it. And then they they marketed it as like uh, now you have this disease, but. Everyone has pre something because we're humans, mm-hmm. right? Like I have pre made pre hit by a car when I leave here. <laughs> How would I know, right? But don't we all have pre something? Right. Some <laughs> people so have more true. risks of things, but everyone is a pre something, right? Even if you get it, well, like pre diabetes, two thirds of people don't get diabetes. So really, what are they pre what? Yeah, you know. Right, like that's the whole the whole thing. I mean, it means something that if your A1C is higher, and I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't mean you need to be a med, and it doesn't mean you are going to get diabetes, and it doesn't mean any of that. It's right. basically, you know, Dumbo or whatever the newest neighborhood in your own city is, right? Um, we did a similar thing a decade or two ago about osteopenia. That all of a sudden became like a disease. And then this is, it's pretty old, but I think it was the New York Times, a great article about osteopenia became a disease when they figured out how to make really um, small scans. So osteopenia is when your bones are thinner, but not osteoporosis. Oh, so like pre-osteoporotic. It's pre-osteoporosis, exactly. (laughs) And that became a thing when they were able to create and market these little machines that people could do quick, like bone density things in the offices. And then guess what? I have a med for you to take for your osteopenia. And now you can have a medication. So they would give these things to doctor's offices so they could diagnose new things. I mean, think about that happens all the time. And now, you know, in the U.S., we have direct-to-consumer advertising for all these drugs, too. So you you have that. So, yeah, prediabetes really pisses me off. Yeah. Well, and and so when there's something like, let's say, prediabetes, someone has come, they've been, oh, I heard this. I was diagnosed apparently and now they're coming to you. You know, I I imagine what I'm about to say is very true. I'm just going to say it though for everyone listening. So typically a a primary care physician, a family doctor would immediately say to someone who's pre-diabetic and fat or, you know, has a higher than normal BMI, the first thing they would say, the intervention would be, well, you immediately have to lose weight by any means possible. Um, you don't do that. Same with like fatty liver, like all these things. So what what do you do oh, also instead? Also because that's not doing it. No. <laughs> I don't say I know. it be, not, because, not because of that, because also like we know it fails. There's, I, I used to say this, but I think I shouldn't anymore. But like if there was a medicine that we knew worked 5% of the time, would you be okay prescribing it all the time? No, no, you wouldn't. Right. So why are we like prescribing that when we know it fails and it makes things worse? 
the reason I'm saying I maybe have to scrap that is because of that Alzheimer's drug that the FDA approved that really has terrible evidence for it. So maybe we do it a lot and we don't know about it, but you know, know better, do better. Like if I, why would I tell you to also that's stupid. Like as if people haven't tried that before, it's like telling someone that doctors talk about this too, in like some of the social media things that I try to avoid. Doctors feel like it's a responsibility to tell people that they're fat. And I'm like, hi, we live yeah. in this world. We all know we're fat. We all like, like, you think that hasn't occurred to us before? Oh, yeah. Maybe I should lose weight. Everything is at us to lose weight in the world. You have to actively work to not buy into that. Oh, yeah. So telling someone lose weight is like, it's, it's a nothing. But you got eight minutes with them. You can move on. You could chart, and then you're not charting. They call it pedometer time when we chart at home. You're not doing the two or three hours of charting that most docs have to do at home. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of why people do that because it is the easiest way to get people out of the room. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. You know, it's hard to be in healthcare right now. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone is dysregulated. Yeah. Everyone is sick. I have an almost completely vaccinated population. I'm, I have so many people with COVID right now. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, all of that on top of it, if I saw you and I'd be like, oh, lose weight and come back in six months. I just basically did it to buy myself time, you know, and um, and also we're told that that would help. But yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. No, and it harms, then we do harm. Yeah. yeah. Why would we want to do that? Oh, yeah. So for people listening who can't can't come to you <laughs> in your beautiful practice, yeah. uh, what are do you have some tips, some ways that we can advocate for ourselves in medical situations? So I'm glad I'm following Ray and Chastain because those health sheets are amazing and everyone should print them the whole set out and give it to every doctor you meet. Oh, why haven't I done that? Oh my gosh. I'm going to do that the next time I go to my GP. Print out the whole, the whole entire set. And then, you know, there's links on it. It's not like you can't see the primary source material if you don't want to. Right. Um, I would definitely do that. I would always say, um, please don't weigh me. And you can get those please don't weigh me cards also. Um, <laughs> personally, I have done many different things not to be weighed. Um, from the, I mean, let's face that I have a ton of privilege because I am a doctor going to medical things and like my primary care person is, is my friend. It's hard to not be, you know, in that world with that. But I can say things that people other like other people really wouldn't be able to do. And also there's less of that power differential. I know I'm the patient, but I also am still a doctor, right? So like um at one point somebody argued with me and I just said, you know, the last time I I did I said I would be weighed at the doctor's office, I actually my bulimia came back. And that really shut them up. It was a lie, but whatever. <laughs> but if you if you can like give them direct examples of the harm they will actually cause you, you'd be like, my eating disorder came back. Oof. It's a little manipulative, but I, I wanted to be like, I'm not doing it. There's zero reason to do it. So like you could argue about like, well, 
are you going to prescribe me a medicine that you actually need my weight for because I'm not a child? Yeah. Are you going to, like, how is this going to change my care? Yeah. And then I guess I, w- I would actually have to look this up. I-, I will try to find this because telling people that if you refuse and then it's out of the denominator, it will actually help some of their scores. <laughs> <laughs> so give them an ROI. <laughs> yeah, right, oh, exactly. Um, so I would do that. I would, I would call beforehand and ask, but that's very difficult to do, right? To have the courage to call to see, is this accessible? What does your waiting room look like? Will I have to bring, you know, things? Um, yeah, I've tried to do that. And I found that the people didn't really understand my questions. You know, I would say, look, I'm a fat person. Is there like, I would, I would ask, but unless I don't know. It was like they didn't know what I was asking. They're like, oh, yeah, no problem. Then I get there. I'm like, oh, no problem. Like, do you have, do you, I'm coming for, I had to do a sonohistogram, the thing where they put the water into you. And, and, and it was a, I hadn't had that level of procedure before. And I said, okay, so will the bed work? What, what the gown situation? Like, and they were like, oh, it's totally fine. I get there and no, it was not fine. They were like, oh, we can fit all bodies. I'm like, <laughs> Okay. If you don't have a yeah. gown that fits. Oh yeah, I was called out about my gown by somebody because uh I have gowns that go up to as big as you can get them, but um they're cloth and so I have to wash them at my house. Yeah. <laughs> Someone came in and I didn't have the right size and I was like, Yeah, I'm not even wearing clean underwear, so like it has way more to do with doing my laundry. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I've been much better since then. Like I will do them right away. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, and the fact that you even have the different sizes, like, again, I've probably had, I don't know, 20 ultrasounds in the last, you know, few years. And I, I don't think I've been to a place yet. And I'm, I'm like medium, large fat, and there's still nothing that fits my body. I've been to hospitals. I've been to clinics. I've been to like specific ultrasound clinics, like so many different settings, I've also given them to people or, you know, let them borrow it. You can buy them on Amazon. I mean, I got, I got mine on Amazon. Oh my God. Kind of like how I take my own seatbelt extender. I should just take my own hospital gown. (laughs) Take your own gown. And this way, I was thinking of that because someone who I work with a lot too, with Rachel, asked me about that. One of her clients needed to go to Durham and they were really worried because the last time they went, there really was not a gown for them. So I just gave a gown. I'm like, it's probably a good investment. So people could take them when they go to specialists and hopefully bring them back. Laundered, I hope. I have had someone say, I said, you know, this gown doesn't fit, so I'm just going to keep my clothing. And they said, no, it's not sterile. And so there was a whole, they kind of... A gown's not sterile right I was like did you (laughs) sterilize this gown like I yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of battles there's a lot of made up stuff a lot of made up stuff when you go to the doctor and they say they'll say things like that you know the classic is what advice would you give me if I was in a smaller size body right yeah that's that there's the other you could say you know um we know that no diets work. And so telling me to do this basically means you're not doing any intervention. Mm-hmm. 
or you can say, okay, so aside from that, what else would you recommend? Right? And see what and see what happens. Yeah. Or you can say, okay, can you please note in my chart that you're refusing me care because of my space? Yeah. That's like what we always do for insurance companies that deny somebody something they need. I'm like, oh, thank you. Can you please give me your name so I can chart it when there is, if in case there's litigation for delaying care. Does that change anything for the... Oh, yeah, it always helps. It always helps. But I'm not going to like start by yeah. threatening everybody. But if I'm all the way in there and I think so, like I don't order a lot of things that need recertification, although lately I do. I'm not like that much of a testy, outside testy kind of duck. Um, like people need MRIs and things like that. And so I actually, I don't know, I have this book. This is also very Philadelphia based. Jefferson has MRI machines and the, the, the capacity of the tables are really good. Some of them are really quite fine. Good. So um, I also had another person call around to try to see about that and CT scan. So at least I would know where to send people where to send people. Yeah. So like, um, you know, like saying, well, what, what would you, would, would you do testing on someone else? Like the classic on this is like knee pain or hip pain, right? Or back pain. Like who doesn't have back pain? Um, <laughs> Everyone I know has back pain. <laughs> right. And what do they call a pandemic ass now? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, what would you do other than that? And then, you know, if they say, oh, I'd send you to PT, you'd be like, all right, great. I love PT. Send me to PT. Mm -hmm. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think a lot about um, is specialty care, right? Hmm. And so when I have to send people, I get very nervous about it because I don't want to cause harm. Like I really caused harm to that patient who wanted a tubal and like her blood pressure spiked, all of the things. It was just terrible. And so knowing that you're doing that, I'm trying to get over that, right? I can't control those things, but, um, Talking to everyone you know, like trying to find that community. And as much as I don't want to be on any social media, sometimes it's very helpful in those cases, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that, that, oh, I also had a patient who had a bad experience with a specialist. Um, and I told her and I was like, you know, they said something about, oh, well, are you, are you on a medicine for weight loss yet? Right. And, or wanted to prescribe something for weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of ridiculous. And, um, so this person didn't want to go back and they said, you know, I, I think you should write, write something. And if you feel like you can't send it, don't send it, but at least you've written it down. But then they sent it as an email and they got an apology and they were like, we'll never talk about it again. So it's like, you see, people are teachable. Like nobody goes into med school to like hate on people. Yeah. You know, med school makes you hate on people. <laughs> nobody like starts it to be like, oh, I want to be a doctor so I can be an asshole. Yeah. Well, we all just, we get so indoctrinated non-consensually. The research is the lies a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's. It's lies. And 
people are under unbelievable amounts of stress the way that we do medicine now, you know? And so give people the benefit of the doubt, like maybe once I'm trying to, this is, I'm, I'm talking about myself and I'm trying to do this. Everyone is dysregulated, right? We've been, the years have been rough. We're all extremely dysregulated. Sometimes I won't send an email or even a message on the portal to someone until I've slept when I'm like, oh yeah, you're not in a good place. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll get, I'll get called out on stuff and I'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. That was terrible. And I'm sorry. And I'll try to make up and do what I need to do. Right. So people, like if you give somebody the opportunity to be like that, please don't mention that again, or I'm working in a different paradigm now, can we do that? So that that's another thing. And that was actually a very positive experience that happened. You know, who knows? We'll see what happens when they go back to that specialist. But the idea that like don't don't discount a doc immediately mm. because, you know, the patient that they saw right before you might have been like super complicated or terrible or whatever, you know, and all the people that they're seeing. So I have a little compassion at first and give it a try. And then if they're still a jerk, you know, move on. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that, Vicky. Thank you. Those are great, great tips. My my other tip that I do with people is I'll coach them before if we need to. Mostly pregnant people. That is like the worst. Oh. God. Yeah, I have a whole episode about fat pregnancy that I did in season one. It's brutal. Yeah. God, I'm so happy I had my kids so long ago. Mm. Um, <laughs> like, I don't I, all this stuff. Like I, honestly, and I also had my children in Northern California, so it was a very different experience than here. But um, we'll play the game. Um, and we'll play like that. I'm going to tell you how you're going to have preeclampsia and your baby's going to die. I should do all these things and you're going to tell me what you're going to say. You know what I mean? Like we do that. That's and good. And if all those fails, it's the smile and wave. Like if I, if I have people who have Medicaid, I can't order a sleep study on them. And so they have to see somebody and I'm like, they're going to talk to you about that. And you're going to smile and wave and be like, okay, when are we doing the sleep study? Yeah. Yeah. And, and be done. Right. And unfortunately, you have to smile and wave a lot to get what you want. So, like, I'll be very, very upfront with people. I was like, I want you to go to cardiology, and we want an echocardiogram and a monitor. And then anything else, you say, sure, okay, whatever, and then just don't do it. Yeah. And then we, <laughs> 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 we get the results, <laughs> then we go from there. Right. Yeah. And then, right, like, we are doing it for, we have our goals in mind, know that it might be shitty, but that's the goal. That's great. If we can get those things done that we need, then you get it done. Like, like I think about this a lot because sometimes I play the O word game too, right? Like when COVID um, vaccines came out, I was like, fuck it, everybody go, get it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not even true, but and by the time COVID vaccines came out, we knew that wasn't even true. But Yeah. Oh, I got early and my partner did too. I was like, he's my caregiver. Let's take advantage. Hop <laughs> on on that train you know, yeah. and I'll do it for like people to use their FSA for gym membership. Like, but they know, and I say, you know, I'm going to use that word because it'll get you what you want. 
but like I'm not going to have it in my chart otherwise. Yeah. What I hear is so much gentleness there. There's like a gentleness, there's an equipping people, and there's a real recognition of, look, you know, it's not right, but we live in this world. And so here's how we can do it with as minimal harm, as safe as possible that we can in this moment. That's so powerful, Vicky. That's sort of what it, it's harm reduction. Harm reduction, you know? yeah. That's how we're practicing, harm reduction. That's great. Also, when I was at an FQHC, I was, I was like yelled at twice about some woman's A1C that wasn't getting controlled. She was in the most abusive relationship ever. And I just looked at, this was like my chair. And um, I looked at her and I was like, she's not going to live long enough for her diabetes to kill her. Her partner's killing her. And I was like, you could talk to me all you want about her A1C, but I've been working on other things that'll be more important. You know, like, right? So, like, you can have an A1C of 6.5 or 6.8. And to have an A1C of 6.5, your life is miserable and you're restricting and you're basically eating disordered, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can be okay in your body and not be restricted or thinking about carbs, calories, all those stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. And you will probably be just as fine. Right. Yeah. It's so good to hear a doctor say that. But it, it, some of those numbers are so arbitrary and I've seen them change and I see the pendulum go back and forth. This so is I'm the like, thing. Right. It's like when you're in training and you work with one attending and they're like, you have to do it this way. This is the only way to do it. This is how you do it. The next time you're on call, you're with a different attending. And I'm like, this is the only way to do it. And it's the exact opposite of how the other attending did it. And so you get, and then, you know, sometimes they yell at you because you did it exactly the way the other attending told you was the way to do it. Right. And then you got to realize, okay, so really there is no only way to do it because there's no only way to do anything. No. And our bodies are so different. Like I take a med, I mean, and even just biochemistry, like I, you know, I've tried four drugs for endometriosis. The ones that worked so well for other people did not work for me and vice versa. Like, otherwise there'd be one drug. Otherwise okay. there'd be one. Everything drug. there'd be one drug. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, there'd be more because every time that one went off patent, oh, then it would be a, one yeah. molecule and they and call it something <laughs> different, but it would be the same drug. The whole yeah, time. exactly. Oh my gosh. But yeah, like there's body, look at the world. There's diversity in everything. There's body diversity. There's things like that. Like, I don't really hang out with like the mainstream medical people, right? Um, but it was really super interesting to be, I went to Montreal for the um, WPATH conference, the World Professional Association. I don't even know what it is, but it's the biggest trans conference that was international. Mm -hmm. And like the, the even the whole language was so different. It's like the language that I live in now. And then I went to some stupid thing I had to do to renew my license. I was like, wow, it's so different, right? Like in the fat activist world, we all accept that there's body diversity. In the queer world, we accept that there's so much diversity in terms of sexuality and gender and neurodiversity and all that stuff and everything is like it it's so different just depending on which community you're in it's that true. 
you know, whatever's going to work for you is going to work for you. And also, it's not me. I'm not the person. Like, I have my own stuff to deal with. I'm not going to choose what you deal with. I can hardly choose to do the stuff that I need to deal with for myself. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm going to give you your options, and you can choose which one makes sense for you. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Oh, Vicky, thank you. I want to, I want to move us to joy because I am so curious. What connects you to joy? How do you, again, you work in a really challenging environment. So how do you, how do you stay connected to joy? I am trying to find little bits of joy now. I find joy in my patients in many ways, mostly because they're really pretty kick-ass. Most of them are kind of activists and do things for other people. And so seeing that is really makes me so, you know, it restores a little bit of my faith in them. Mm-hmm. Still not high. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that actually brings me quite a bit of joy. And then the other things I was trying to think about, this, I broke my teeth. I crowned on my teeth and I fell um, scootering in Washington, D.C., not this summer, but the summer before. But you know what? Five minutes before, I was like, this is one of the funnest things I've done in so long. I was like, I'm having so much fun. I'll do it again. I'm yes. still going to do it again. I did it again a little bit when I was on vacation. I was in Denver, but not for that long. And even though, like, it, this has been a terrible adventure all this time, but I did that because my kids were always saying, oh, you should do this with us. And I would always say, no, no, you do it. And then I was like, oh, I could do it. And part of that is like, I am concerned about weight limits. Am I going to fit? Is this a thing that I'm actually going to be able to do? Um, So I am going to do more when my kids say, oh, yeah, you should do this too. (laughs) That's great. That's how I'm going to have joy. Yeah, I had joy uh, plus and minus anxiety uh, last spring because I started to play softball again. Oh, yeah, because I was like, you know what? My eating disorder took softball away from me, and I kind of love softball. I, w- I was doing a diabetes class with people, and one of the pictures like, oh, my parents made me do all these like organized sports, and I was like, oh, I love softball. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I also was a little bit in love with one of the pictures, you know, the whole. <laughs> baby dyke stereotype of it yeah. whatever <laughs> but i really did love it before my eating disorder kind of took that away from me yeah so that i find joy for it i i'm hopefully going to be able to do it again but it depends on what happens in my mouth um and then i am finding <laughs> i found joy yesterday because i could eat pizza cut up for toddlers and that was really delicious and wonderful yay pizza and <laughs> right <laughs> didn't do anything for so long and um you know i i find a lot of joy in my kids actually and i think that um so like when my son who's at school comes home and if he actually wants to hang out <laughs> like that also brings joy. I will also be very happy um, when we can go out to eat outside again, when it's not so cold, that has been bringing me some joy to connect with people person to person. Mm-hmm. Those are beautiful. 
I know. And I do need to think about this more. I always do. I have been thinking about this ever since, mm. you know, like joy. I sometimes like I'll be walking home and the sun will be setting and that's beautiful. You know, like those sorts of things, like little, little tiny moments that you're like, Oh, this is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Those totally count. Those sort of things that get you through. Like I have come to the realization a little late in the game that, um, I, I really have to not schedule things for like December through February because it's probably just not going to happen. I probably have to, like, you know, especially if we're to go into another year where COVID surges in there, I'm just going to have to not do it and then get through, you know? Yeah. That's, that's some good self care. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. Your future self will pa- thank your past self for that. My future one. self will like my last year self sent a message to this year self through my calendar about scheduling more sick spots. I was like, "Thank you, past self. That was very helpful of you." I know <laughs> this. I'm not doing anything. Was not my idea. I'm in a pretty awesome little business coaching group, and it was actually someone else's idea because I was like. I took these days and I didn't do anything and I don't feel refreshed. And then I was like, I want an A plus plus and relaxation. And I said, right. So just like, <laughs> you know, like, um, body trust, those amazing, amazing people. Yeah. Right. C minus. I always say C plus work, but like C minus work. I want to do the C's get degrees way. Yeah. You know, for a lot of things. <laughs> um, yeah. And that this patient, this patient, this person in my group, really said what if you just accepted that these are never going to be easy months and i'm like yeah you're right i think i had more expectation like when you're in urgent care the winter is terrible and you do it for the summer which is quite nice and actually i did a lot of the work about building my own business during the summer um but you do the winters because the summers are good but now the summers are like the winter so why would you bother right so i'm not i'm i'm just going to be okay with that and then figure out like Maybe, I don't know, first week in March, maybe I'll take time off and do something really good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And and I do, um, I'm part of a creative writing studio. I'm a creative writing coach as well. And (laughs) I think a couple of years ago, we we all got together. There's 10 of us. I think it was a couple of years ago. And um, maybe even pre-COVID or maybe it was because, I'm not exactly sure when it started, but it was pretty recent. We were like, February's are hard. So we closed down for a week in February because February's are hard. And that's like literally what we put on our out of office messages. We're like, we're closed. February is hard. See you in a week. And I just, yeah, love that. Love the permission to do that. So may we all. (laughs) Yeah, maybe may we all do that. The other thing is we are mammals and. I feel it. The light. Right. Like we would all be, you know eating our gruel and going to sleep soon. Absolutely. Right? Like, as soon as it goes dark, I'm like, bedtime, five o'clock. <laughs> All right. Like, why not? Why every, every other species slows down a little bit. So it's true. You know, we, we should, we, what did I, I said, we are mammals with overdeveloped brains so that we can worry about things. Yeah. <laughs> that <gosh>. is basically. <laughs> Oh, Vicki, you're so wise. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. I feel feel like people are going to learn so much from this. And I think uh, if I can speak for what I imagine 
a lot of people may feel as they listen to this episode is that it is truly my first time talking to a medical professional who has any awareness, any knowledge, and any curiosity and openness to what it's like to live in a fat body. And it's, it's, I just, it's amazing to me. And I'm so grateful to have had this conversation because it does give me a little bit of hope as well. So thank you. Um, and I hope that's what people take away as well, is that people like Vicki do exist out there. We can empower ourselves to ask those questions as much as we're able. Um, and, you know, I feel like the more we do that, the more we advocate for ourselves, maybe doctors start to get a little bit of the message and we can just start to create, I guess, change from the ground up. And unfortunately, we have to do all the emotional labor of that as marginalized people. But and I don't know, we just have to deal with it as best we can. But it's so and sometimes smiling and waving is the best way to do it. My sister always used to send me that gift when I was at a place that I would just smile and wave and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Smile and wave and be like, uh-huh, and then I'm going to do whatever the F I want. Anyhow, anyhow, so I'm going to smile and wave at you. Prescription, yes. please. Okay, see ya. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a lovely day. Right? Oh, <laughs> oh, thank you, Vicki. It's been such a joy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Dr. Vicki Borgia is deeply passionate about her patients um, and that commitment to their dignity and compassion for their experiences and her desire to not cause further harm to people living in marginalized bodies is deeply inspiring. And it had me thinking about this intricate poem by Manahil Banduquala called The World Within the World Within You. So here it is. Oh, and under the title, there's a little kind of like a subtitle. It's a quote. There are worlds between my toes. I am a bear. And that's a quote by, it has a line that says, a bear, and then in parentheses, at a underscore single underscore bear, <laughs> parentheses. All right, here's the poem. There are worlds within the worlds within you. Each world spores its own fungi. The forest hidden in your ear canal is spongy. All the leaves fire-like, all the dried-up streams, all the little chipmunks ferrying acorns across your helix. Press your right ear to a pillow. Your worlds sleep when you sleep to the distant rumble of an always shaking earth. The garden in your hip crease is damp from autumn rain. I tried to tread carefully, but there are so many mushrooms, each one reaping the harvest of early spring. 
There are worlds that rise with you each day, while others exist only between moments. The moments where you scrunch up your shoulder blades creates the inner curve of a waterfall basin down to your tailbone. I swim in the pool under mist, the nudge of each breaststroke, the light airiness of a kiss. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.